Friends, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Lord God, in the, uh, the hum of our voices and the smiles and the words and the hugs that we share, we celebrate something of the good gift that you have given us in fellowship with each other. And now in this moment of silence before you, as we put all of those things to the side for a moment, we celebrate our fellowship and friendship with you. You are the one who makes it happen. You are the one who has promised us that when we turn to you, that always you are there. You are as close to us as the air that surrounds us. You are as powerful in our own lives as that same power that created all things. You are as loving and generous and kind as you have been to your people throughout the ages who, even though we usually fail to get it right, still you always get it right with us and make us to know you, to love you, to follow you. We remember these things about you, even though we could go on and on and on. We could never say everything, but we do say this. We say that we claim your presence with us now. We claim your claim upon us to be your followers. Help us learn these things even more now as we open the scriptures. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, um, I'm finding that I'm having to read Exodus uh, because if I'm not here teaching, then I need to remember what it is that you've been learning so that I can know where we are in the story. And that's actually an important principle for all of us to remember. You already know this, but I'll reinforce this for you. It is very, very dangerous to take one story or one saying, one little snippet out of the scriptures and study it all by itself and apply it to your life all by itself because every piece of scripture is within a larger story. And we must always, always, always interpret the smaller pieces in light of the larger pieces. So often the misappropriation of the scriptures and the bad theology that we hear out in the public sphere comes when people have lifted one little thing and made it say what they wanted it to say. And so it's very important, uh, especially as we're talking about the story today, for us to look at some of the things that it says, some of the things that it touches on within that larger story. And of course, you well know we're in the story of God's rescue of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian slavery, God's leading the people out into the wilderness and into a time of shaping and forming into what will become the nation of Israel. That's where we are in the story. In the last couple of weeks, um, I decided that it was appropriate to give the plagues uh, to Jan Cook, and uh, <laughs> we'll just leave that where it is. <laughs> but we've had all of these plagues, you know, the frogs and the locusts and all that stuff happening uh, as God's ramping up the pressure on Pharaoh to let the people go. And then, of course, we've come to what, in a sense, is the final plague, and of course, we would never make light of this one, uh, the, the killing of the firstborn children of, of the Egyptians. Um, and so now the story is going to continue. Let's pick up and read together the first 16 verses of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, 
consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals is mine. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No, un, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. When the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors, and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as an emblem on your forehead that by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay. Um, this is now the third time in less than 24 hours uh, that I will be going through this scripture passage with a group of folks. Uh, yesterday morning it was 51 folks from La Costa Glen. This morning it was about uh, 25 or 26 men, uh, and now it's all of you. And one of the things that has grown in my appreciation of this scripture passage is just how profound an impact it was on the Hebrew people that their firstborn had been spared, but the firstborn of the Egyptians had been sacrificed. So I want to start the conversation there with this. There's conversation here about the firstborn being dedicated to the Lord and all the things that happen out of that, and we'll talk about that. But think of the profound impact on you as a simple human being when you understand that your firstborn is saved, but the firstborn of others is now sacrificed. Um, I had never really appreciated in the same way the, um, the trauma, the stress, the agony, the 
the grief, the lament, um, mixed with elation <laughs> and relief and all of that. I mean, what an, what an amazing whipsaw of emotions would be going on uh, in, in the Hebrew people. Uh, and we could talk about that for a long time, but let me simply start us with that sense of appreciation. That's where the context of this conversation is so important. You know, the plagues that, that came upon the Egyptians were also, in large part, suffered by everybody there, right? Frogs falling out of the sky and all that other stuff going on. Well, the story of the Passover, which is what we have just come through and which is what we're talking about celebrating over and over again, uh, that story has just now happened uh, for everybody. And, and the impact of it is, is absolutely profound. So there is going to be a retelling of the story. This story, as we have it written in the text of Deuteronomy, uh, is language uh, that is obviously written down hundreds of years after the event, a story that's been told and told and retold orally and then written many, many times. Uh, but in a sense, we have it in its distilled uh, encapsulated form, uh, pure 100% unadulterated story. And the people of Israel are commanded to remember and to retell this story over and over and over again. Never to forsake the telling of the story, not just because it's an interesting story, but because it is the story that is the foundation of the Israelite nation in a way like nothing else before. Now, I know last week, uh, last week, last year we, we uh, studied Genesis and God's call upon Abraham and his family. Um, but that is ancient history to these people. And it's a history that for 400 years, 430, we're told, has lain dormant. And now it is a story that is revived with the exodus of the Hebrew slaves uh, from Egypt. Um, just as for Christian people, there is a central story in our faith. It is the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not his birth, but the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the fundamental story of our faith. The fundamental story of the faith of the Hebrew people is the Passover. I know we're moving into uh, the holiday period uh, when a lot of people will be celebrating Christmas and a lot of folks will be celebrating Hanukkah. And I think that most people, especially in this country, think that Hanukkah is a really big celebration for the Jews. And, and theologically, that's not true. Uh, Hanukkah is lifted up and celebrated because it's a minor story as far as the Jewish history goes, and they've got to do something while the Christians are having a good time. Uh, but the big story, the big story for the Jews is Passover. Now, we celebrate our Easter at around the same time as Passover because Easter happened during the Passover, but that's a conversation we can have later. So, this story needs to be told over and over and over again. In fact, God commands, he doesn't ask, God commands every successive generation of Jews to tell this story to their children. 
And that story becomes uh, encapsulated and enshrined and ensured through the worship life of Israel. That's what worship actually is, is retelling the story of what God has done. There is a liturgy that is begun here. Liturgy is the work of the people. That's literally what, what, what liturgy is. Every year during the time that this happened, the people are to tell the story again and to tell their children again so that the children will become part of the story. There's very, very interesting language here. Uh, verse, um, verse 8, um, you're supposed to eat unleavened bread, for seven days, celebrate the festival, and then you shall tell your child on that day that I'm eating this bread because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, in the original experience of the story, that made perfect sense, right? The people leave and you celebrate this Passover and a kid doesn't remember the Passover or they're born after this event of the Exodus. And so mom and dad and grandpa and grandma say, the Lord did this for me. And that made sense because they were the generation that had left Egypt. But eventually that generation that had left Egypt died off, but that did not change the liturgy. That did not change the story. The children who were born wandering around in the wilderness, or the children who were born after the people came into the promised land were to say the exact same thing. I was a slave in Egypt and the Lord rescued me. This is a fundamental transaction that goes on. It's a fundamental relationship that is set up that every Jew must understand that even though the story happened hundreds or even now thousands of years ago, it's a story that happened to me. You see the importance of that. Now, for the first generation of people, there's, there's tremendous, of course, memory of all of that experience. There's tremendous emotion of that. But if it's something that's a few thousand years ago, you wouldn't necessarily relate to it. Say, yeah, that happened way back when, but it doesn't make any difference, right? I can't relate to it. I can't feel it. Well, this is meant to ensure that we do relate to it, that we do feel it when you make it your own experience. Now, one of the benefits... There aren't many, but one of the benefits of getting older is that you begin to understand just how short time is, right? Right? When you're 10 years old and you hear your parents talking about something that happened 10 years before you were born, it doesn't make any difference to you. You can't relate to it now, right? But all of us, for the most part, in this room can tell stories about things that happened to us maybe 30, 40, 50 800 years ago. And, and there are stories. They're still important to us. And by this liturgy, by this worship, the people are being tied. Every successive generation is being tied directly back into the story of the Exodus. You see how crucial that is. That is a, a, a dynamic of our worship as Christians that carries over. We tell the story about Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. Even though I wasn't born then, you weren't born then, but he died for your sins on the cross. 
And his resurrection is meant to be just as important and meaningful to us, impactful to us, as it was to those first people who discovered the fact that he was resurrected. So that's an important piece of this uh, this section of, of Deuteronomy is that uh, we are being told literally that we must re, uh, rehearse, repeat, retell, relive the story so that it becomes our own story. Now, there's a, a big emphasis here on the consecration of the firstborn or the redemption of the firstborn or the sacrifice of the firstborn. And there are actually several streams of, of, of experience and thought that are moving into this conversation. We know that uh, in the ancient world um, that many pagan religions had as part of their practice at times um, the literal sacrifice, the killing of the firstborn sheep, the firstborn cow, the firstborn child, human child. Uh, last year we talked about uh, God saying to Abraham, take your son Isaac up onto the mountain and prepare to sacrifice him. There are many people who see in that uh, some remnants perhaps of actual child sacrifice in the ancient Hebrew people. That might have been the case, but it's clearly the case that the Hebrew people came to understand that God did not want us to kill our firstborn children. God provided the substitute in the ram. And, and we modern people look at that as this completely unintelligible, barbaric, just weird sort of thing and would prefer not to talk about it, frankly. However, we have to understand where it comes from, then we'll begin to see what it means. All ancient people understood the mystery, the beauty, the importance, the sanctity of a new generation being born. What happens if a new generation is not born? We're done. We're extinct. Okay? Now, as I've been speaking, there have probably been at least 10,000 children born, right? Thank heavens we don't have to take care of all of them. Uh, <laughs> And, and so we don't focus very much. You know, we, we look at the, the other side of the problem. Golly, there's too many babies. How can we stop having babies? But especially in the ancient world and even in the modern world, it is not a foregone conclusion that there are going to be babies born. You know, I would guess there are some folks here who have not been able to have children. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to deal with, right? There are folks in this room who have already lost children. And that's a terribly difficult thing to deal with. The simple fact of a new generation being born, whether it's human beings or animals or, or even the produce of the land, is in some sense the fundamental thing that has to happen to keep life going on the planet, isn't it? Right? And so that act, uh, that experience came to have tremendous theological religious significance for everyone because they understood that it was the basic transaction of life. And so ancient pagans believed that the way to give thanks to God, the way to ensure that God continued uh, the process of things being born, uh, was to sacrifice the first one back to God, okay? Clearly now, though, the Hebrew people understand that even though that first one is dedicated to God, consecrated to God, in a sense has a special place uh, within the larger cosmic meaning of things, that a substitute sacrifice is, is put into its place. Now, 
also what's going on here is not just this appreciation of the sanctity of reproduction, the sanctity of human life. And we got a baby here today. Thank you, God, for bringing a baby along. <laughs> See, this is the perfect example. This is great. This is great. I didn't make that happen. You made that happen. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Right? Um, not only are we celebrating that, we're, we're lifting up the sanctity of human life. At a moment in Israel's history, when that reality of the creative power of God and our dependence on the gift of life, that reality has just been illustrated for us in a very, very powerful and positive way and as well in a very, very negative and destructive way. The, the Hebrew people have taken a lamb and killed the lamb and taken the blood and smeared it on the doorpost so that God would continue the lives of the firstborn of the Hebrew people. But God also has taken the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians. The celebration of the Passover is a celebration of the fact that the Hebrews survived, but it's also a lamentation of the fact that some of God's children died. If you can't relate that to what's going on today, <laughs> then you and I need to have a visit about your need to pay attention to the news, right? This is life. Now, it's a long conversation, um, and we can't have it all of it here when we say that God killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, right? How could God possibly kill innocent children? But all through the scriptures, innocent children are killed, not because of God initially, but because of the obstinance of the people who are supposed to serve God, right? Pharaoh was hard-hearted. The only way that God could change Pharaoh's heart for just a little while, as it turned out, uh, was through the sacrifice of human beings. We have that same experience. Uh, we could, uh, and maybe we should do this uh, as we get a little bit closer to Christmas, uh, the story of Jesus' birth is attended by what? The sacrifice of children. Herod uh, has the firstborn sons up to the age of two years old killed in Israel. I look at this not so much as an indictment of God, how could God be so cruel as to kill innocent children, as it is really just a commentary uh, on the nature of human life. There is not a period of human history in any place on the planet that goes for very long without violence and the taking of life and sacrifice in order to make life happen. Here is sacrifice. That's important to Christians because our faith is grounded not in human sacrifice, but in divine sacrifice. And that is a huge, huge change. When people say that all religion is the same, uh, this is one place where you can say, no, I don't think so. Because the Christian story is that God sacrifices on our behalf, not that we must sacrifice in order to make God love us. Does that make sense to you? All of these things are there. We can never fully resolve in our minds how it is that a loving God can sacrifice innocent children other than to say that every life belongs to God. That's here in this text. God says you shall consecrate and redeem the life of this firstborn because it's mine. Where does life come from? God. 
God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we talk about the majesty of God, when we talk about God getting to do what God wants to do because God is God and we are not, we have to go to that place where we say God even has the right to take life away. We can say that's unjust, that's unfair. Those conversations need to be held and we need to uphold that, uphold that side of it as well. But on the one side, when we affirm that God is everything, <laughs> then we have to say that God even has the right to take life. Now, as the story progresses, of course, as we move further in Israel's history, as we move into the history of the church, we understand the sanctity of life. We understand that God values life so much that at the end of the day, he decides not to take our lives, but to sacrifice his own. And so while in the ancient stories of the Old Testament, it's a relatively minor issue, it seems, for human life to be taken away. Friends, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Lord God, in the, uh, the hum of our voices and the smiles and the words and the hugs that we share, we celebrate something of the good gift that you have given us in fellowship with each other. And now in this moment of silence before you, as we put all of those things to the side for a moment, we celebrate our fellowship and friendship with you. You are the one who makes it happen. You are the one who has promised us that when we turn to you, that always you are there. You are as close to us as the air that surrounds us. You are as powerful in our own lives as that same power that created all things. You are as loving and generous and kind as you have been to your people throughout the ages who, even though we usually fail to get it right, still you always get it right with us and make us to know you, to love you, to follow you. We remember these things about you even though we could go on and on and on. We could never say everything, but we do say this. We say that we claim your presence with us now. We claim your claim upon us to be your followers. Help us learn these things even more now as we open the scriptures. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, um, I'm finding that I'm having to read Exodus uh, because if I'm not here teaching, then I need to remember what it is that you've been learning so that I can know where we are in the story. And that's actually an important principle for all of us to remember. You already know this, but I'll reinforce this for you. It is very, very dangerous to take one story or one saying, one little snippet out of the scriptures and study it all by itself and apply it to your life all by itself, because every piece of Scripture is within a larger story. And we must always, always, always interpret the smaller pieces in light of the larger pieces. So often the misappropriation of the Scriptures and the bad theology that we hear out in the public sphere comes when people have lifted one little thing and made it say what they wanted it to say. 
And so it's very important, uh, especially as we're talking about the story today, for us to look at some of the things that it says, some of the things that it touches on within that larger story. And of course, you well know we're in the story of God's rescue of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian slavery, God's leading the people out into the wilderness and into a time of shaping and forming into what will become the nation of Israel. That's where we are in the story. In the last couple of weeks, um, I decided that it was appropriate to give the plagues uh, to Jan Cook, and uh, <laughs> we'll just leave that where it is. <laughs> but we've had all of these plagues, you know, the frogs and the locusts and all that stuff happening uh, as God's ramping up the pressure on Pharaoh to let the people go. And then, of course, we've come to what, in a sense, is the final plague. And of course, we would never make light of this one, uh, the, the killing of the firstborn children of, of the Egyptians. Um, and so now the story is going to continue. Let's pick up and read together the first 16 verses of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals, is mine. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No, un, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. When the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors, and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb." All the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as an emblem on your forehead that by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay. Um, this is now the third time in less than 24 hours 
uh, that I will be going through this scripture passage with a group of folks. Uh, yesterday morning, it was 51 folks from La Costa Glen. This morning, it was about uh, 25 or 26 men, uh, and now it's all of you. And one of the things that has grown in my appreciation of this scripture passage is just how profound an impact it was on the Hebrew people that their firstborn had been spared, but the firstborn of the Egyptians had been sacrificed. So I want to start the conversation there with this. There's conversation here about the firstborn being dedicated to the Lord and all the things that happen out of that, and we'll talk about that. But think of the profound impact on you as a simple human being when you understand that your firstborn is saved, but the firstborn of others is now sacrificed. Um, I had never really appreciated in the same way the, um, the trauma, the stress, the agony, the, the grief, the lament um, mixed with elation <laughs> and relief and all of that. I mean, what an, what an amazing whipsaw of emotions would be going on uh, in, in the Hebrew people. Uh, and we could talk about that for a long time, but let me simply start us with that sense of appreciation. That's where the context of this conversation is so important. You know, the plagues that, that came upon the Egyptians were also, in large part, suffered by everybody there, right? Frogs falling out of the sky and all that other stuff going on. Well, the story of the Passover, which is what we have just come through and which is what we're talking about celebrating over and over again, uh, that story has just now happened uh, for everybody. And, and the impact of it is, is absolutely profound. So there is going to be a retelling of the story. This story, as we have it written in the text of Deuteronomy, uh, is language uh, that is obviously written down hundreds of years after the event, a story that's been told and told and retold orally and then written many, many times. Uh, but in a sense, we have it in its distilled uh, encapsulated form, uh, pure 100% unadulterated story. And the people of Israel are commanded to remember and to retell this story over and over and over again. Never to forsake the telling of the story, not just because it's an interesting story, but because it is the story that is the foundation of the Israelite nation in a way like nothing else before. Now, I know last week, uh, last week, last year, we, we uh, studied Genesis and God's call upon Abraham and his family. Um, but that is ancient history to these people. And it's a history that for 400 years, 430, we're told, has lain dormant. And now it is a story that is revived with the exodus of the Hebrew slaves uh, from Egypt. Um, just as for Christian people, there is a central story in our faith. It is the story of 
the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not his birth, but the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the fundamental story of our faith. The fundamental story of the faith of the Hebrew people is the Passover. I know we're moving into uh, the holiday period uh, when a lot of people will be celebrating Christmas and a lot of folks will be celebrating Hanukkah. And I think that most people, especially in this country, think that Hanukkah is a really big celebration for the Jews. And, and theologically, that's not true. Uh, Hanukkah is lifted up and celebrated because it's a minor story as far as the Jewish history goes, and they've got to do something while the Christians are having a good time. Uh, but the big story, the big story for the Jews is Passover. Now, we celebrate our Easter at around the same time as Passover because Easter happened during the Passover, but that's a conversation we can have later. So, this story needs to be told over and over and over again. In fact, God commands, he doesn't ask, God commands every successive generation of Jews to tell this story to their children. And that story becomes uh, encapsulated and enshrined and ensured through the worship life of Israel. That's what worship actually is, is retelling the story of what God has done. There is a liturgy that is begun here. Liturgy is the work of the people. That's literally what, what, what liturgy is. Every year during the time that this happened, the people are to tell the story again and to tell their children again so that the children will become part of the story. There's very, very interesting language here. Uh, verse, um, verse 8, um, you're supposed to eat unleavened bread for seven days, celebrate the festival, and then you shall tell your child on that day that I'm eating this bread because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, in the original experience of the story, that made perfect sense, right? The people leave and you celebrate this Passover and a kid doesn't remember the Passover or they're born after this event of the Exodus. And so mom and dad and grandpa and grandma say, the Lord did this for me. And that made sense because they were the generation that had left Egypt. But eventually that generation that had left Egypt died off, but that did not change the liturgy. That did not change the story. The children who were born wandering around in the wilderness or the children who were born after the people came into the promised land were to say the exact same thing. I was a slave in Egypt and the Lord rescued me. This is a fundamental transaction that goes on. It's a fundamental relationship that is set up that every Jew must understand that even though the story happened hundreds or even now thousands of years ago, it's a story that happened to me. You see the importance of that. Now, 
for the first generation of people, there's, there's tremendous, of course, memory of all of that experience. There's tremendous emotion of that. But if it's something that's a few thousand years ago, you wouldn't necessarily relate to it. Say, yeah, that happened way back when, but it doesn't make any difference, right? I can't relate to it. I can't feel it. Well, this is meant to ensure that we do relate to it, that we do feel it when you make it your own experience. Now, one of the benefits... There aren't many, but one of the benefits of getting older is that you begin to understand just how short time is, right? Right? When you're 10 years old and you hear your parents talking about something that happened 10 years before you were born, it doesn't make any difference to you. You can't relate to it now, right? But all of us, for the most part, in this room can tell stories about things that happened to us maybe 30, 40, 50 800 years ago. And, and there are stories. They're still important to us. And by this liturgy, by this worship, the people are being tied. Every successive generation is being tied directly back into the story of the Exodus. You see how crucial that is. That is a, a, a dynamic of our worship as Christians that carries over. We tell the story about Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. Even though I wasn't born then, you weren't born then, but he died for your sins on the cross. And his resurrection is meant to be just as important and meaningful to us, impactful to us, as it was to those first people who discovered the fact that he was resurrected. So that's an important piece of this this section of of Deuteronomy, is that uh, we are being told literally that we must uh, rehearse, repeat, retell, relive the story so that it becomes our own story. Now, there's a, a big emphasis here on the consecration of the firstborn or the redemption of the firstborn or the sacrifice of the firstborn. There are actually several streams of of experience and thought that are moving into this conversation. We know that uh, in the ancient world um, that many pagan religions had as part of their practice at times um, the literal sacrifice, the killing of the firstborn sheep, the firstborn cow, the firstborn child, human child. Uh, Last year we talked about uh, God saying to Abraham, take your son Isaac up onto the mountain and prepare to sacrifice him. There are many people who see in that uh, some remnants perhaps of actual child sacrifice in the ancient Hebrew people. That might have been the case, but it's clearly the case that the Hebrew people came to understand that God did not want us to kill our firstborn children. God provided the substitute in the ram. And and we modern people look at that as this completely unintelligible, barbaric, just weird sort of thing and would prefer not to talk about it, frankly. However, we have to understand where it comes from, then we'll begin to see what it means. All ancient people understood the mystery, the beauty, the importance, the sanctity of a new generation being born. What happens if a new generation is not born? We're done. We're extinct. Okay. Now, as I've been speaking, there have probably been at least 10,000 children born 
right? Thank heavens we don't have to take care of all of them. Uh, <laughs> and, and so we don't focus very much. You know, we, we look at the, the other side of the problem. Golly, there's too many babies. How can we stop having babies? But especially in the ancient world and even in the modern world, it is not a foregone conclusion that there are going to be babies born. You know, I would guess there are some folks here who have not been able to have children. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to deal with, right? There are folks in this room who have already lost children, and that's a terribly difficult thing to deal with. The simple fact of a new generation being born, whether it's human beings or animals or, or even the produce of the land, is in some sense the fundamental thing that has to happen to keep life going on the planet, isn't it? Right? And so that act, uh, that experience came to have tremendous theological religious significance for everyone because they understood that it was the basic transaction of life. And so ancient pagans believed that the way to give thanks to God, the way to ensure that God continued uh, the process of things being born, uh, was to sacrifice the first one back to God, okay? Clearly now, though, the Hebrew people understand that even though that first one is dedicated to God, consecrated to God, in a sense has a special place uh, within the larger cosmic meaning of things, that a substitute sacrifice is, is put into its place. Now, also what's going on here is not just this appreciation of the sanctity of reproduction, the sanctity of human life, and we got a baby here today. Thank you, God, for bringing a baby along. See, this is the perfect example. This is great. This is great. I didn't make that happen. You made that happen. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Right? Um, not only are we celebrating that, we're, we're lifting up the sanctity of human life at a moment in Israel's history when that reality of the creative power of God and our dependence on the gift of life. That reality has just been illustrated for us in a very, very powerful and positive way, and as well in a very, very negative and destructive way. The, the Hebrew people have taken a lamb and killed the lamb and taken the blood and smeared it on the doorpost so that God would continue the lives of the firstborn of the Hebrew people. But God also has taken the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians. The celebration of the Passover is a celebration of the fact that the Hebrews survived, but it's also a lamentation of the fact that some of God's children died. If you can't relate that to what's going on today, <laughs> then you and I need to have a visit about your need to pay attention to the news, right? This is life. Now, it's a long conversation, um, and we can't have it all of it here when we say that God killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, right? How could God possibly kill innocent children? But all through the scriptures, innocent children are killed, not because of God initially, but because of the obstinance of the people who are supposed to serve God, right? Pharaoh was hard-hearted. The only way that God could change Pharaoh's heart for just a little while, as it turned out, uh, was through the sacrifice of human beings. We have that same experience. Uh, we could, uh, and maybe we should do this uh, as we get a little bit closer to Christmas. Uh, the story of Jesus' birth is attended by what? The sacrifice of children. Herod 
uh, has the firstborn sons up to the age of two years old killed in Israel. I look at this not so much as an indictment of God, how could God be so cruel as to kill innocent children, as it is really just a commentary uh, on the nature of human life. There is not a period of human history in any place on the planet that goes for very long without violence and the taking of life and sacrifice in order to make life happen. Here is sacrifice. That's important to Christians because our faith is grounded not in human sacrifice, but in divine sacrifice. And that is a huge, huge change. When people say that all religion is the same, uh, this is one place where you can say, no, I don't think so. Because the Christian story is that God sacrifices on our behalf. Not that we must sacrifice in order to make God love us. Does that make sense to you? All of these things are there. We can never fully resolve in our minds how it is that a loving God can sacrifice innocent children other than to say that every life belongs to God. That's here in this text. God says you shall consecrate and redeem the life of this firstborn because it's mine. Where does life come from? 